start a new Advent series that is titled, A Light Has Dawned. And we'll start by reading the scripture. As usual, you can find the scripture in your bulletins, or you can find it up here on the screen. The scripture for this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. So let's read the word of God. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you this morning to speak to us through this passage. There is wisdom here. There is hope here. There is the grounds for love and joy, boldness, endurance, and more. So we ask you, please, to help us see you this morning in these words. And we pray in your name. Amen. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament lived in the darkest times in Israel's history. The Assyrians were the dominant force in the Middle East, and from what is now Iraq, the Assyrians conquered the neighboring nations in all directions. The Assyrians swept into the north of Israel, up here and down into Israel. And we read in Isaiah about Zebulun and Naphtali, Those were the two northernmost tribes of Israel. And so as the Assyrians swept in, those tribes bore the brunt of this invasion. The Assyrians were terrible fighters. They were efficient. They were well-equipped. They were cruel and proud of it. They fought a sort of psychological warfare by advertising their cruelty. And they basically took out almost the equivalent of billboards that says, here is what happens to the nation that resists Assyria. So this is a frieze in the British Museum that came from Assyria. And this is a conquered nation. You'll see down here that there are people who are being led away. They're being deported to foreign lands. There's also a man carrying a burden. And this tells us that they took everything all the property away from the conquered nation. And you'll see over here on the side, these are big people. It's not that they're grown-ups. These are the leaders, the wealthy, the powerful, the political and religious leaders. And they are having hands laid on them in a way that will be most unpleasant. This is the PG-rated slide. There are a number of slides in the British Museum that weren't fitting for church because the things that they did to the leaders of the nations that resisted were terrible. Israel saw what was coming, and they were terrified. In the midst of this dark time, Isaiah offered hope to Israel. 
Isaiah wrote this. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Our Advent series bears the title, A Light Has Dawned, from these words. Isaiah tells Israel that there is still hope that a light has dawned. Isaiah's prophecy was, of course, directed to Israel in its time of trouble, but this vision of hope extends beyond Israel. This is a hope for all of humankind. So this morning we're going to look at the nature of Christian hope. We're going to look at Christian hope in the lives of three men and what hope means for us. The three men are Isaiah. Isaiah announced the hope. And Simeon in the New Testament. Simeon anticipated the incarnation of hope. And we're going to talk about Rembrandt, the painter, because Rembrandt found assurance in this hope. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about how Christians today find application of hope. So let's dive in. What do we mean when we talk about hope? Well, commonly, we use hope in a couple of ways. One is that there is a future condition and a desired outcome. So in the Werner household, we have had three weddings in St. Louis in August. What do you say about a wedding in St. Louis in August? I certainly hope it's not too hot, right? There is a, a, a future condition and desired outcome, but not much ability to influence what's going to happen. A second way that we use the word hope is to talk about a thing that we depend upon in our darkest hours. Everybody knows this line, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. So hope can mean that thing that we look to when life is most difficult. But to Christians, hope means more than either of these two things. So in this short passage, Isaiah describes five qualities of Christian hope. First of all, Isaiah's hope is from God. Isaiah says, In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So who's the he? Who's the actor? Well, it's God. Secondly, Isaiah's hope is, in his eyes, a certainty. Isaiah writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. So I can assure you that during the time of Isaiah, none of these things had happened. But God had given Isaiah this vision of hope. And so note the verb tenses. They're all in the past tense. In Isaiah's eyes, these are things that God has purposed to establish and therefore they will happen, and therefore we can rejoice even though they're not visible to our eyes. They are to Isaiah and should be to us a certainty. Third, Isaiah's hope is available to all people. The hope is first for both Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah says, he, God, will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. So this was an area within Israel, but It was occupied by both Jews and Gentiles. And so there was no barrier for ethnicity. People of every background could enjoy this hope. 
And it was also for the people who were in absolutely the worst circumstances. The people walking in darkness, he says, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So there is no one whose circumstances are beyond Isaiah's hope. Fourth, Isaiah's hope is worth staking our lives on. Distress turns to joy. Gloom turns to rejoicing. He writes, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So there are two pictures here. One is of warriors, one is of farmers, and they have something in common. That is that they risk their very lives on their endeavor. A warrior goes to battle, and he doesn't know if he will survive the battle. And when he has survived and there is a victory, he rejoices. The farmer may be less obvious, but the farmer takes the seeds which, which could sustain himself and his family, and he throws them in the ground, and he hopes for a harvest. And then when the harvest comes, he rejoices. So these two pictures have in common risk of life and rejoicing at success. Isaiah's hope is worth staking our lives on. And finally, Isaiah's hope is focused on a child who will govern and make things right. That's the hope that Lance expressed a little while ago. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. This is the expected Messiah who will come on David's throne. This is the expected Messiah who will come as a child to rule and govern. So as Isaiah expressed it, there are five qualities of Christian hope. First of all, Christian hope is from God. The hope is a certainty because God will bring that hope to fruition. The hope is available to all people regardless of background or circumstance. The hope is worth staking our lives on. And the hope is focused on a child who will govern his people and make things right. Now you have to ask, what happened? Years went by, centuries went by, and there were a series of governments and conquerors that came through Israel. So the Assyrians were followed by the Babylonians, the Babylonians were followed by the Greeks under Alexander, then there were the Seleucids, there was a period of independence. And finally, by the time that Christ was born, the Romans had conquered Israel. So what happened to Isaiah's hope? Was there anyone who still believed Isaiah's hope? Through the series of political changes, Isaiah's hope was seen only dimly by the people of Israel, but there were some people who still believed Isaiah's hope. And when we come to the New Testament, we read about a man named Simeon who awaited the hope of Israel. So let's read his story. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that is, took the infant Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So as this, as this story opens... Joseph and Mary are fulfilling the Old Testament law 
from the time of Passover up until the time that we read this story, it was the practice, the law of the Old Testament, that a firstborn son should be consecrated to God. So as they came to Jerusalem, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your Salvation, As some translations say, he, sa- he says, his words are, let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mo- mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. So I want to look at a painting for just a minute. It's a painting by Rembrandt. And Rembrandt has captured the action in Luke very well. You see at the center of the painting, the Holy Family here. Mary, it's a little hard to read her expression, She gasps, perhaps, at the things that are being said about her child and holds herself in surprise. And it's hard to tell whether she is delighted or apprehensive. I like Joseph over here. He reminds me of me. He has the two doves for the sacrifice down here. He's a task-oriented guy. And he also looks a little bit puzzled. Like in my family, my wife would absorb all all this long before, and I would be sitting there scratching my head. Here's the, the high priest who offers the blessing. There are two old beggars who come over. Most of the temple is filled with people who pay no attention. And over here, we see Simeon holding the child. And Simeon announces the hope. The hope that Simeon announces is very much like the hope announced by Isaiah. First of all, the hope is from God. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, God is the actor here. Simeon's hope is a certainty. It says that Simeon holds the child in his arms. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation. This is a salvation, a hope that can be touched and felt. Christianity is unique, perhaps, along with Judaism, in that it is based in facts, not just someone's personal revelation, but something that can be touched and felt. We have two new grandchildren in my family, and there is a certain scent to a baby, right? This is 
a salvation that can be held to a baby, right? This is a salvation that can be held and seen and perhaps even smelled. So this is a certainty. And he says, talks about this is a salvation. Even though this is only a child, the salvation is yet to come, but to Simeon it has already happened. Third, Simeon's hope is available to all people. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. There is no one who is outside this salvation. Fourth, Simeon's hope is worth staking our lives on. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This passage is sometimes referred to as Simeon's goodbye to the world. Simeon has seen the world. He sees this child and says, compared to this child, I'm ready to go. The world has no more charms for me. And fifth, Simeon's hope is focused on a child who will govern and make things right. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. This child will govern human affairs. So Simeon echoes the hope of Isaiah and the hope of all Christians in his words. Now I want to go back for just a minute to this painting, the presentation at the temple. And I want to talk about Rembrandt, the man, for a little while. Rembrandt painted this painting, the presentation at the temple, when he was 25 years old. It's a work of genius, really. You can see conveyed in the figure's emotion. You can see Mary's astonishment, Joseph's puzzlement, the passion that Simeon has for the promise of God. The detail is beautiful. Look at the headdress on the priest and look at the drape of his clothing. And it's also a mastery of light. So there is a window up here someplace. We, of course, don't see the window, but we can see the effect of the light. And there is also a light that emanates from the child, Jesus. So Rembrandt had mastered his art. He lived at this time in the small town of Leiden, Holland. And shortly after this, he moved to Amsterdam, the big city, to seek his fortune. And for a while after he made the move, Rembrandt's life was a triumphal procession. He had a new style of painting which was very well received. The people of Amsterdam, the prosperous, engaged him to paint their portraits and he did very well financially. Apprentices flocked to him and he had a very busy studio. He met and married a young woman named Saskia who was beautiful and sweet and as a benefit she came from a wealthy family and they had a son named Titus. At about this time, Rembrandt painted his own self-portrait. And you can sort of see what he's about. You can see sort of an air of confidence about him and self-assurance and also prosperity. So he has fur on his collar here. He has some jewelry on his clothing. And he leans over this bar with an air of self-assurance. And he says to you, why don't you engage me to paint your portrait? I can make you look this good. But he also says... It won't be cheap. (laughs) Later life was not so kind to Rembrandt. When Rembrandt was 36, his wife, Saskia, died and left him to raise their one-year-old son, Titus. 
a woman named Girta moved into Rembrandt's house to take care of the child. I'm sure that Rembrandt was lonely, and Girta and Rembrandt began an intimate relationship. As time went on, she began to demand marriage, but Rembrandt was not in love with her. And there was also a financial consideration. As I said, Saskia came from a wealthy family, and her estate was substantial. She had provided in her will that her estate was to be enjoyed by Rembrandt, but if he remarried, her estate was to go to their son, Titus. Rembrandt did not want to lose the income from her estate, and so he told Girta that he would not marry her. Things became increasingly ugly between them, and she brought a lawsuit against Rembrandt for breach of promise, and the court awarded Girta the sum of 200 guilders a year for the rest of her life. That was a substantial sum of money. And then a very peculiar thing happened. Rembrandt brought his own lawsuit to have Girta declared mentally incompetent. She was taken away to an asylum, and she spent most of the rest of her life in the asylum. Rembrandt never had to pay his 200 guilders a year. Over the last years of his life, Rembrandt was humbled. Styles changed. People went to other paintings. People went to other painters to have their portraits done. His money began to dry up. Apprentices no longer wanted to work for him. Bills came due and he couldn't pay. He had to declare bankruptcy. His house was taken away. All of his property was taken away. His son Titus, now an adult, died before Rembrandt. During these years, Rembrandt more and more painted the Bible and became known as the painter of the Bible. Here's how Rembrandt showed himself in those later years. The fine clothes are gone. He wears a cloth cap. He has down here his easel and his uh, brushes, the tools of the trade. The swagger is gone. The glint in the eye is gone. He's a workman now. When Rembrandt died, he was buried in a pauper's grave because no one could afford a grave for him. After Rembrandt died, they went back to his studio and they found this painting unfinished. It is, of course, Simeon. And we get a glimpse of Anna in the back and the infant Jesus. Look at the crudeness of the work. All of the artistry has gone. All the other figures that we saw earlier in his painting of Simeon have dropped out. And there is just an old man in his last days who closes his eyes and says goodbye to this world and says that his hope is in a child. I think that in this painting, Rembrandt tells us what he was thinking about in his last days. You can almost hear as he is at work, you can almost hear him echo the words of Simeon. Lord, let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. And on one level, I think that's great. I think it's wonderful. I'm sorry that in his last years, Rembrandt's reputation was so diminished. I'm sorry he had those 
financial troubles. I'm sorry, his wife died and his son died and he was all alone in his studio. And as the world has beaten up on Rembrandt, I think that it is great that he has a hope. But there's also something that gives me pause. It makes me wonder whether Rembrandt could ever, ever pray to God to be dismissed from this life in peace. That's when I think about the woman, Girta, and how he treated her. The, the, the way that he had behaved toward her and what he had done before God is just terrible. He misused his position as her employer. He misused his position as a man. He misused his economic position to take advantage of a woman who had none of the benefits that he had. By my rough count, I think that he broke eight of the Ten Commandments. And so you wonder, is it really possible for a person who has done this sort of thing, lived like this, to be made right with God? Can somebody like this really be dismissed from this life in peace? And I think the answer is yes. We see a hint in the words of Simeon and the words of Simeon that were echoed by Rembrandt. Those words were... Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. You know, there was another servant of the Lord who said something very similar, but he was not allowed to depart in peace. This is the very child held by Simeon, now grown to manhood. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he saw his impending death, and he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. He said, in essence, Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. But he went on to say, not my will, but your will be done. So he went to a very shameful and brutal death for the sins of people like Simeon and Rembrandt and you and me. The perfect servant became the suffering servant so that sinful people, imperfect servants, could pray with confidence, Lord, let me depart in peace. So that's why Rembrandt can pray, Lord, may your servant be dismissed in peace. That is why he can have hope even in his darkest time. And that means for me... (laughs) that not even my own most miserable failings, not even my most terrible acts can separate me from the hope that God offers to me. My own hope is secure. This morning we've talked about hope in our darkest hours. And for some of you that's very applicable. You are in dark hours of one kind or another. But there are also some of us this morning who hear this and they're thinking along these lines. I understand that hope in dark hours is important. But that's not my life right now. My life is really pretty good. And someday I may have to deal with this, but I don't really see the relevance to me right now. If that's what you're thinking, I'd like to urge you to reconsider the importance of hope. The reason that hope makes all the difference is this. The way we think about our future changes the way we think about our lives right now. Let me say that again. The way that we think about our future changes the way that we think about our lives right now. An illustration. I once heard about a town in 
New England that was situated alongside a river. And the state made plans to build a dam and a reservoir. What do you think life was like in that town? The reservoir wasn't to be completed for another five years or so, but as soon as people heard what was going to happen, they began to change their lives. People knew that their jobs were eventually going to go away, so they began almost immediately to look for jobs in other towns. As they found jobs, they moved out of their homes. The state was going to buy their homes. There was no one else who was going to buy their homes, and so the homes were left abandoned. If you lived in the town and stayed there for a while, there was no point in home repair. There was no point in street repair. The hardware store closed almost right away. The cafe closed as people moved out of town. By the time that reservoir was built and completed and the town was covered over by water, it had been a ghost town for some years. The way that we think about our future affects the way that we live our lives right now. So what about us individually? Is this just about a town or is this applicable to us? I think that Christian hope changes the way that we live right now. First, Christian hope gives me the capacity to love unconditionally. If my future is unsettled, I can't help but want to live protecting myself, guarding myself. If my future is secure, I'm free. I'm free to be generous with my time and my money and my emotions, and that hope becomes the ground for unconditional love. Secondly, with Christian hope, as my future is secure, I have joy. And this ran through the passages that we saw from Isaiah and Simeon. Nothing in this world can separate me from a wonderful future. I have a friend who has had a good, important job. And not too long ago, she was demoted. When I say she was demoted, she was moved to a lateral position that didn't have nearly the same authority and responsibility. And I asked her how she was doing. She takes her work very seriously, but she said about herself, she's a a Christian, she said, it's only a job. She said, I know where my true value lies. Her ego isn't crushed because she knows her future. She can live in joy in all circumstances. With Christian hope, I can be bold. I can have a difficult conversation with somebody when I need to have a hard conversation because there is nothing to be lost that is permanent. And with Christian hope, I can have endurance. I know that I can run the race for the distance and that I will reach the finish line. Are these aspects of life that we should be interested in? right now? You bet they are. The God who offers hope throws these other things in for free. Let me offer you an invitation. This is the first of a series. And today we can only sort of scratch the surface of what Isaiah has to say and what Luke has to tell us about hope. We've started in the darkest hours whence we can see only dimly, but each message each week between now and Christmas. We will look at the hope announced by Isaiah and we will see how that hope is fulfilled through a passage in the Gospel of Luke. Tom will take care of that for us. And we will see the light more and more clearly and with better definition 
as we go along. So I would offer you the invitation to come back next week and learn more about the hope that God offers.